0: Welcome into other people's shoes, the podcast where listeners get to step into the lives of others and see the world through their shoes. Your host, Neil Matthews, is a seasoned interviewer who has a natural talent for empathizing with his guests and drawing out their unique perspectives. Through a combination of storytelling and insightful questioning, Other People's Shoes explores the lives of a diverse range of guests, from everyday people to celebrities and thought leaders. With a warm and welcoming style, Neil creates a safe and supportive space for his guests to share their stories, while also challenging listeners to broaden their perspectives and think more deeply about the world around them. So tune into Other People's Shoes with Neil Matthews and get ready to step into other people's shoes.
1: Welcome into other people's shoes. As you know, I am your host Neil Matthews. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really excited that you've decided to hang around today. Let me tell you now. Help me with this. Maybe some of you remember the days of what is it? The Today Show is that the guy Al Roker is? Yeah, I'm I'm, t- I'm dating myself now, but I remember back in the day that the weatherman was never ever right, and I think even nowadays the weatherman is seldom right. In just always wrong but yet they still are able to maintain a job I I will never understand that as long as I live now you might be thinking to yourself how on earth does that have any relevance on today well hang tight here we are we have in our area and and maybe this is something you want to learn about and perhaps even subscribe to is we have this guy in our area and he runs this amazing page on Facebook yeah on the socials that's right called rogue weather so if you're ever wanting to know things in the little community community of Southern Oregon where I live, this man is truly behind some fascinating facts about weather. Today, we're going to dig deep down into the doldrums of something that has maybe plagued me for a long time in my area that I've never had an opportunity to step into. Today, we're on the hunt for the Sasquatch. Help me welcome in Greg Roberts. Greg, how are you today? I'm good, man. How are you? Good. Quite the introduction, right? I should have also led with the voice of your Medford Rogues. Yeah. Also, yeah, that's, my, my fault on, on that right one. Now? Yeah. My fault on that one. Yeah. No, it's all right. But I do love those Medford Rogues. I myself actually got to do a PA one-time PA opportunity on Father's Day of all days. They were that desperate. They're just pulling people out of the crowd who can talk into a microphone. And lo and behold, here I was doing the Rogues PA announcing with Jonathan Kerman. He was on the radio side, but Mm -hmm. I was doing the PA side. So anyway, it was a fun time for that one opportunity for me to sit in the booth. It was a a bucket list type moment for me. So anyway, back to the real voice of the Rogues.
0: Yeah, it, it is. It's a lot of fun. I was blessed to be able to play baseball at a really high level, listen to the voice. And well, mom and dad gave me some good speaking pipes. And so now that's evolved into me announcing for the Rogues, also announced for North Medford football and baseball, do announcing and webcast play-by-play for the Rogue Valley Adventist School volleyball and basketball team. So, you know, the sports guy side of me gets to have a lot of fun describing the action that happens happens or making the announcements at the rogues games i've been pretty blessed to have the opportunities to do both things announce and do play-by-play and play-by-play is a lot of fun enjoy doing it and get to bring a lot of my personality to it and then of course the announcing just i love that part because i get the best seat in the house i get to see every single thing that happens and get to watch some of these kids really progress i mean we've got guys on oregon state right now like ryan brown he is the top in the Pac-12. And we saw him here in Medford playing for the Rogues before anybody else had seen him. And I could see that talent level in that kid at that time when he was here in Medford. Is was like, I know he's got this in him. And now to see the success he's having for Oregon State, no surprise to me at all.
1: I just wish the Rogues would recruit a little further east. Like if we could get some Tar Heel baseball players out here, listen, yeah. we got a decent team.
0: We actually have players that come to us from the southeastern US and they're coming predominantly from junior colleges and NAIA schools. And they're coming here because they have family in the area. Reasons that some of those kids out of that area will wind up being in here in Medford for the summer. Yeah. I mean, it's not impossible that we couldn't have a Tar Heel here someday.
1: You tell Dave and those guys, if they ever get a Tar Heel, I will be gladly be the host home. (laughs) He will feel like he's in Chapel Hill.
0: Uh, No problem.
1: Well, Greg, help me with this, because I love to lead off every show with this question, and that's this. What size shoes do you wear? 13s. Wow, didn't even have to hesitate. There was no nope. thought. you like, I know it. I have actually had people come on, guys specifically, they're like, I don't know what size I wear. I mean, I might be. I'm like, what? How do you not know? Yeah. One, one guy said his wife buys him shoes, and I had to laugh at that.
0: I have been a size 13 since I was 12 years old. Well, so, there you go. It's easy. It's probably easy. Is I, probably boom, easy. There it
1: is. And is there a style or brand you like more than another? You know, it's
0: funny. I used to kind of snicker about Skechers, and then I started buying Skechers, and they are by far the most comfortable shoe I have ever worn in my life. And I love them because they're basically, they're slip-ons. There's no tie in them, but they still look great. They look like athletic shoes, but they're just supremely comfortable. I don't think I've <laughs> ever had an athletic shoe or anything close to to it that has ever fit my foot as well as these do. So there's my Skechers endorsement.
1: Well, I love it. They don't like me because I often throw rocks at their products. So they, they don't they don't <laughs> like me. I'm a jump man kind of guy. I'm a Jordan kind of guy. I wear a lot of Jordan shoes. But I just bought some Adidas recently. Tracy McGrady back in the day mm-hmm. was a Magic, Orlando Magic. And so they've tricked out his shoe that looked like the Magic 8-Ball. I don't know. They're really shiny yep. and flashy and I love them.
0: I've seen those.
1: So Greg, getting into this, I feel like in our area, and and maybe correct me if I'm wrong here, because I am seldom right and always wrong, but correct me if I'm right here in this moment, you kind of are all things Bigfoot, all things Sasquatch, you're the resident expert, would you say? If
0: if there's another one here locally that's got as much background as I do in it, I'm not aware of them. I mean, you know, this is one of these things that's like the other side of my life, and storms and storm chasing. There's a lot of people into it. There are very few that kind of get, you know, that next level. I think when it comes to Bigfooting, you've got the big major celebrities, the people that everybody knows, the Cliff Barrickmans, the Matt Moneymakers, those kind of guys. Right below them, there's the second tier of people that include like my buddies Bart Catino and Kip Morrill and I think that's pretty safe to say I'm in that group that we've got enough time out in the field and enough knowledge and experience that those top tier people like Cliff like Matt definitely acknowledge the expertise that we've had and continue to show it's kind of nice to be at that position but that wasn't obviously the whole thing that caused me to go into it I wasn't going into Bigfooting to become a Bigfoot celebrity I didn't go into Storm chasing to be a storm chasing celebrity. Frankly, when I started storm chasing, Twister hadn't come out yet. You didn't have the Storm Chaser series. You didn't have everybody live streaming all over social media and YouTube. None of that had happened. I started tor- storm chasing in '86 when the only guys out doing it were truly research related, like through the University of Oklahoma, which that's how I began. I took a severe studies program through them. That the finals was going back to. North- Norman, and then going out and storm chasing with the best of the best. On the big footing side of things, I kind of did almost the exact same thing. My first encounter happened in 1984, and it was 24 years before I even found out what it was that I had heard that even made sense to me. And then I quickly became connected with the BFRO and Matt Moneymaker, and they did an expedition here in Southern Oregon in 2008. I said, hey, I want to attend this. Then they had me send in my background. What kind of experience do you have in the woods well they see wildland firefighter hunter hiker know every bit of southern oregon like i know the back of my hand they get in touch with me and said hey we don't just want you to be at this expedition we want you to help us scout for it and so they said there's a guy that's going to be coming and would you please meet up with him and then help him scout potential locations that guy turned out to be cliff Berrickman, and cliff and i became friends almost instantly and we remain friends to this day he's truly one of the best people I've ever met. Cliff immediately became aware of what I call my woodcraft and my ability out in the mountains. I think if any one person maybe kind of set my bona fides in the Bigfoot world, Cliff probably had a lot to do with that because of being in with BFRO. And then we had the expedition and I got to meet a lot of other top name people, guys like Bart Catino, Tom Yamarone. Matt was there at that point. Although Matt and I, our first meeting together didn't go that well because because we kind of did this being two type A personalities did learn a lot actually in that expedition. And that led to bigger breakthroughs that I would have down the road, which it all helped and it all worked. Storm chasing, big footing, the two things that had in common got immediately affiliated with the best of the best, learned from them and then progressed on my own.
1: A while back, we actually threw through our channels in a series of of events. We actually interviewed a guy who is ironically out in, Fayetteville, North Carolina or nearabouts Fayetteville, North Carolina, who has seen UFOs and has mm-hmm. had a UFO experience. In fact, he wrote this amazing book, UFO God, and it's phenomenal. And so that kind of got my mind thinking, I don't know about UFOs. And then lo and behold, I'm driving into work one day and I'm listening to our good friend, Bill Myers. And I'm like, Bigfoot, like people believe in that around here. That's still a thing. People know that can't be true. And so I'm talking to one of my coworkers recently and and she goes, you don't believe in Bigfoot, Neil? And I'm like, no, I think (laughs) it's stupid. I think anyone who believes in it, who's followed it is no disrespect, an idiot. There's no way that this thing is in our backyard. There's just no way, no way. So yeah. Greg, make me a believer in your cause. The easiest way
0: to start to become a believer is the fact that when you start really looking at human history, not white man, modern progressive man history, when you start looking at human history, the documentation of Sasquatch Bigfoot being present is absolutely there. My colleague, Scott voilette from Squatch America, he comes from the anthropology side of it, and he has done detailed work with the tribes in California, there are representations in glyphs with the tribes in California that there are symbols of human things that you look at these glyphs, they're actually telling a story. These people that had these encounters, all these literally thousands of years ago, drew things to indicate Bigfoot, Bigfoot families, life size, interactions with humans, and then the humans having danger symbols around it to warn that this is their land, you stay away. But Scott spotted something in a glyph that a lot of people, if they've looked into Bigfoot, are familiar with, the hairy man pictograph down in California on the Thule Indian Nation. It is a life-size male Bigfoot, it is a life-size female Bigfoot, and it is a life-size infant. And people have wondered how old those were. Well, there was two things in the bottom of the glyph that I had always Seen that I was like, well, what are those? This year, doing presentations with Scott, I finally learned the answer. There are two symbols in the bottom of the hairy man glyph. They're atlals. Atlals are weapons that were used by early humans here in North America. They are a force projection weapon. It's a piece of wood that you could load an arrow or a spear in it, and then you chuck this thing, and it magnifies the force to help carry the spear or arrow further and have greater penetration power on whatever you're throwing it at. Now, here's the thing. Atlals were most commonly used in North America 3,000 to 5,000 years ago. They largely completely disappeared 1,500 years ago because the bow and arrow came along and became so widely used. Anybody who was using an atlal quit because, hey, bow and arrow, better technology, better weapon. If the hairy man with the presence of the atlals is as old as the atlals. You're talking something 5,000 years old. That predates the Thule tribe. That predates the other neighboring tribes in California. And it gets back to something I've heard from the Yuroks and from the Hoopas right over the border in Northern California. When you ask them, how long has Bigfoot been here with you? They say, as long as we have been people, not as long as the person you're talking to has been around, as long as we have been people. So that means going clear back to through the history of their tribe, they have have always been present. Up and down the West Coast, throughout Oregon, California, Washington, British Columbia, up into southeastern Alaska, the native tribes are consistent about this. They're consistent about describing something and behaviors that we still see manifesting to this day. Therein gets to the other side of it. Now you look at the modern man and the reports and what's coming out. Sure, there's a lot of hoax. Sure, there's a lot of misidentification, but there's a lot of other things that I don't care if you're talking to Indians reporting things thousands of years ago, 200 years ago, modern people have similar encounters with something described exactly the same way as it's been for thousands of years. When you start looking at what we now have collected as what some people will say is circumstantial evidence, footprints, handprints, feces, hair samples, there are things that have been collected. Modern science goes, we don't know what made that. You can look at the footprints. You can look at the handprints. You will see dermal ridging exactly like what you see with human handprints and footprints, except the scale is different and they're laid out differently. And you can look up Dr. Jeff Meldrum at Idaho State University, and he's got presentations online, and he breaks that part of it down better than anything. You have all of these reliably described features and behaviors that do not deviate. I approach it more from the aspect of if they are approaching some people, why don't they approach all people? The reason? They read us. And I truly believe that except for a freak episode they're crossing a road and somebody happens to come along in a car or somebody is sitting by a trail being totally quiet and they have no way to know that you're there and then all of a sudden they're in full view of you and then they run off. The chance encounters are going to happen. The people going out deliberately looking for them though by and large, they're approaching them completely disrespectfully and that's why the people going out and they're trying to use their cameras and they're trying to use all this other stuff and record them they're not having a lot of success. Every everybody goes, well, how come every video of a Bigfoot looks blurry? Because 99.9% of those videos and pictures are taken by people who didn't even really truly believe they existed until they saw them. And then when you get fear going, what happens? Boom. I rest my case.
1: I don't know a lot about it, but I know there's this Patterson guy who was the first one to really document the Bigfoot side. Now, I remember watching that as a kid and I watched it recently in preparation of you coming on. It looks fake. It has always looks fake to me when I was a kid, it looked fake. It looks fake as an adult, it doesn't look real. In your mind, is it real? It's 100% real. The
0: thing about it is people think it has to be fake. The first thing is trying to wrap your mind around just the possibility. Roger Patterson, I did not have the chance to meet him. I so wish I could have. He died of lung cancer five years after he shot the video. I did talk to his partner, Bob Gimlin. Bob is very much alive and kicking at the age of 94, and Bob is sharp as a tack, and he still has full clarity of everything that happened that day. What had happened was Roger had gone down into that area on previous expeditions. He knew there was activity in that area. Well, people started letting him know up in Yakima, they're active and this is where they're active at. Roger decides to give it another shot and he talks Bob into going in with him. Well, Bob's like, okay, I'll go along, be a great excuse to ride horses in the mountains. Bob didn't really truly think they were going to see anything. They're riding up on October 20th of nineteen sixty. Hot day. Upper 80s, probably around 90. You got that nice cool creek right there. And they're coming in on horses, and it's just the two of them on horseback. Well, Roger had a movie-grade camera with him. He was fully prepared for what he might encounter in every way. So they come riding up on the creek and the horses react first because the horses became aware of her presence first. Then they see her stand up and she starts moving away, heading up towards the mountain. Roger comes off his horse. He gets down, he gets himself steady on a log with the camera and he starts rolling tape. That's when the clarity of the image improves because now Roger is stable and on the log. When she turns to look, i feel found out from talking to Bob she does that when he rides his horse across the creek because Bob couldn't believe what he was seeing he wanted to get closer to her and get a better look at her and she turns and she does that famous turn look at Bob as he's coming over the creek and she just keeps walking purposefully away if you look at that and then you look at the technology of suits at the time go look at the original planet of the apes movie that is what suits of that era looked like that definitely does not look like Planet of the Apes. Then, as we move into more modern times, and they can start cleaning up that image, they suddenly realize this is a female with breasts, anatomically correct breasts. Then, as they kept enhancing it, you can see soft tissue injury on the top of her right thigh. There is a ball up underneath hair, but there's a ball there. Which in humans, you, when you detach a muscle, the muscle rolls up underneath your skin. And guys who detach their muscles playing sports. I've seen it happen. It goes and it rolls up and it creates a little ball underneath the skin. So she has that. When she moves, you can see muscle movement. A suit is never going to show you muscle movement. Then there was a guy here in Medford who sadly passed away due to COVID, Doug Devine. He owned Pacific Survey Supply. National Geographic reached out to him and said, hey, would your equipment be able to analyze? And they laid a scenario out for him. He goes, sure. It's all laser precision. We can take measurements. We can figure out all kinds of things. They take Doug and his equipment down there to the PGF site. There are still landmarks that Addie walked by that they were able to immediately determine how tall she was—seven foot four. Then, because of the cast that Roger and Bob made of her footprints, they were able to get the depth she was compacting the dirt down. They were able to also work out how much she weighed, which was eight hundred and approximately seven. pounds to put that much pressure down to create the depth meaning the depth of the footprint to push it that far down in the dirt that's how much weight was required Doug told me he became an instant believer then because he said there's no way that was a guy in a suit when you break down and you watch how her anatomy moves especially with her knees and her feet she displays something called a compliant gait where her knee pivots and her foot actually swings around and you see the whole Bottom of the foot come up, which looks white, which a lot of people claim. well, that's why it's a hoax. Lots of things have bare feet, will have very pale skin on the bottom of their feet but they're dark everywhere else which is what she was so I saw that and I was always convinced it was valid last year on August 20th I attended an event up at the North American Bigfoot Center that Cliff phones outside of Portland and I was listening to a buddy of mine by the name of Michael Freeman talk about footage his dad filmed in Northeastern Oregon I suddenly realized hey there's a lot of comparisons here hot day female out in the open, near water, the only water source. She was at a place called d Springs and it suddenly dawned on me, wait a minute, we now know there was a youngster present when Paul Freeman got his footage of a female Bigfoot. I had Scott volette who was at a Bigfoot conference with Bob Gimlin. I said, hey, did you guys find other sets of prints? And Bob has always said Roger was yelling at him, don't leave him because he'd seen other footprints there. He knew there were other Bigfoot's around which by the way I have also discovered doing my own work it's never just one they move in groups exactly like Harry and the Henderson shows you I have Scott ask Bob the question when you guys had the encounter with Patty and you made the film these other footprints that you found was one of them smaller and Scott got the answer on tape and Bob said absolutely one of them was smaller we figured it was a younger female her tracks went the opposite direction of where Patty went Bob wound up following those tracks for a mile downstream, and then it went into some really heavy brush and a really deep spot in a creek that he didn't feel like going through. So he turned around and went back to Roger, who was already doing plaster cast of the footprints Patty had left. So now we know what had happened. Why did a female Bigfoot, and it's rare to see females, but why did a female Bigfoot Show herself like that in the middle of the day, and it's completely abnormal behavior for them. It was because there was a juvenile there, and in that case, she did the mama kill deer, she made sure their attention was fully focused at her, and she headed the opposite direction of where the juvenile went. We had the same thing happen with Paul Freeman when he shot his footage. A baby is there in the new enhanced footage of the Freeman film. You see the female pick up a baby. You see legs dangling down that all of a sudden retract and come up exactly like human toddlers do, exactly like we see chimpanzees, like we see orangs. The presence of the babies on hot days when they're trying to see cool water and get relief, all of a sudden here comes a human with a movie camera. So Roger Patterson was equipped and ready. Paul Freeman was equipped and ready. The majority of the people who go out or not. And then they try and go out in the middle of the night in the dark when you're putting off all kinds of electric signals off of your equipment and those things pick up on it. Every once while, how come they don't show up on game cams? They hear them or they see them and they pick up on the electric field. Every predator that I've ever seen will look right directly at a game cam. Bears attack them. All kinds of reasons. Bears attack them. When you take something that's as naturally wary as a Bigfoot is and it's like, that thing's putting off an electric field. I don't know about this. I don't want to get near it. They don't get near it. Same thing is true of people. They literally will choose the ones they actually do want to get close to and the ones they want to avoid. And all these people go... Been gone out in the woods for 40 years. Ain't never seen anything around here. I would bet you had more than a few times that you walked, maybe even as close as 20 feet away from Bigfoot that you never even knew was there. And it just stood frozen in the landscape and you just went trembling right on by and you never even saw it. I watch hunters walk right past deer and elk all the time. They never even saw them. They were literally right next to them.
1: What type of animal is it? Or is it an animal? Is it a mammal? It doesn't seem like a reptile.
0: Dr. Jeff Meldrum says, here is what Dr. Melba Ketchum says, and both of them have one thing very consistent. They do truly believe there is an element of relic hominid here. How I base my own belief on that is, if you believe in the Bible... It's going to help you. Humans that we become now, were smaller. We don't live as long. Humans back in Bible times, the earliest humans were a lot bigger than we were. And every so often, remains of these earliest relic humans pop up in crazy places. If you watch the show Alaska Triangle, they have a whole episode devoted to the Alaskan giant, even though you can't find anybody who's seen one. They unearth these skeletons of massive humans, huge heads, three times the size of what we have already, and varying in height anywhere from 10 to 15 feet. That sounds crazy based on our modern dimensions, but when you go and you look at the Bible and you look at how they portray human in those times, hmm, all of a sudden, you have a match there. You really truly do.
1: So have you personally ever seen Bigfoot? Yep. What was that experience like? When it actually
0: happened, I wasn't scared. I wasn't really blown away. I was a little awestruck. Because it's one thing to do a lot of research to be prepared for what you might see, then that first time you see it, it's like, geez, these things really are huge. I think the best part about it was it was so non threatening in any way. They just became curious about me. I knew I was in the right area, I knew they were there. I just wanted to find a way to make them want to approach me. And so, what I did was I picked a nice, big, full moonlit night, got dropped off at a gate at the end of the road. then I was going to have about a three mile hike back down this mountain to where the camp was. Got dropped off. I sat there for a half an hour at the gate and then I got up and I started walking down the hill. No flashlight, no nothing. Just walking along like I didn't have a care in the world. In short, I went out and I basically was the anti-human. I wasn't doing this with the flashlight, being startled at every sound. And part of it was my background. I've been in the woods my whole life. Grew up as a kid in the woods. I was comfortable being out there in the dark. When you're a wildland firefighter, you're out in the dark in the woods a lot. It didn't scare me to be in there. And then plus the moonlight was so bright, I could see everything except back into the heaviest patches of trees. I mean, it's total black underneath that canopy and the trees all in tight. Wasn't that, and especially the road I was walking on, everything about the road was lit up. Everything immediately along the road was lit up. I wasn't worried at all. I just wanted to see what the reaction would be. I hadn't gone more than three quarters of a mile before I had the first one start paralleling me, checking me out and seeing what I was doing. Fear the crunch and knew I had movement up above it, me and following me. And when I'd stop, it would stop. And so I'd start moving, but then I turned around quick and look up just in time to see one pull back and get behind a tree. And I was like, cool. It worked. I Made mean, them so curious, they had to come and take a look and try and figure out what I could possibly be doing out there. Ultimately, what wound up happening, I wound up having four of them parallel me, two on one, on the uphill side of the road from me, two down below, working through a Manzanita patch. The two above me, one was big, real big, and then there was a smaller one, and then down below me in the Manzanita patch, I'd stop and look and see heads looking at me over the Manzanita, and then they'd duck as soon as they realized I was looking at them. They just keep following me. And then, and I know it was the kids, then they start testing me. They start soft tossing little rocks and little pine cones over my shoulder and into the road in front of me. I think they wanted to see if they could get me to just take off running down the road. And I just turn around and go, I know what you're doing. I'm not running. I'm just walking. And I did. I kept walking on down the road and they kept following me. And the kids were kids. They kept messing with me, trying to get me to, ah! to running off down the road this went on all the way back to the camp well where our camp was there's a bend in the road and then the camps right there as soon as i came around that bend in the road my escorts were gone get back to the camp bud's sitting there going well what happened i go great i got parallel all the way back here oh you got to be kidding me no so we're sitting there and i'm talking about what's going on and we're talking about what maybe our next approach is going to be and i look over across from me and there's this depth that goes down and then it goes up into this reprod area that had been logged out. There's like a game trail that ran through there and suddenly I'm looking at that game trail and I see these two dim red things that at first, I was like what am I, what is that? And then all of a sudden the dim red things blinked. And when they blinked, I was like, whoa! And I knew immediately what it was. I stood up and that thing moved in behind a tree and Jeff's like what, what? And I go, I shine. There was one standing right over there in that trail that goes over to the clearing he was standing right there and as soon as I stood up and went whoa boom behind the tree and he's like oh cool I sit back down we start talking again and I look up and I see one little red glowing spot over there and then I see two and I go he's back and Jeff goes what you know and turned no 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 don't turn like that the next time I tell you to look rotate your head real slow and then look up so we're sitting there talking and then I realized okay he's back he's looking at us and I told him I said okay now turn your head slow and then just gradually lift your head and just sat there waiting and then all of a sudden I hear him go oh my god and I said see it He goes, absolutely. And then he saw the eye blink as well. And I said, that that's eye shine. That's a Bigfoot standing there. He's looking right at us and watching us. We just sat there and we just watched him watch us. And then I think he just literally got bored because he realized we're just sitting there around the fire and we're talking, we're not doing anything. He turned and he moved off the trail and headed out over into the clearing, which I think the rest of the family group was over there foraging around, getting berries, working through the Manzanitas that still had some berries. I mean, There's food sourcing there. That's why they were there. And then from that point, the relationship, if you will, that I developed with that family group progressed to the point that when I had my Chevy Colorado pickup and was making numerous trips up there, I could pull up in that truck, shut that truck off. And if they were right there, they would tree knock at me or they'd whoop at me. And then I'd give them a response. And then it was all on from there. They would start doing what they were doing. And I would just sit there and kind of listen to observe what was happening because it was never about trying to become famous or prove anything. I just wanted to try to understand them better, get a better feel. Now here's the interesting part. You would think I would have a better feel for what they are. I actually probably have more questions about what they are now. Even after having direct encounters around them and being close to them, I don't have any ideas. A friend of ours, Rob Diaz, has had an Encounter with them at Medco Pond, Rob's unequivocal. But Rob's also deeply religious and in the Bible. He says they're Nephilim. And if you know anything about the Bible and Nephilim, Nephilim are the angels that were cast out from heaven when the war happened that cast Lucifer out to become Satan here on earth. Rob truly believes this. He's not alone in that belief, though. I have talked to two other people who've had encounters with them that they believe that's what they are. Well, what corresponds to that? Dr. Melba Ketchum, first dna revealed hybrid of human and then she said it's going to sound crazy but something not of this world and she's put it all on nephilim so some of the behaviors that they have the ability to appear and disappear naturally produced eye shine that i just talked about seeing the sounds that they make that have been analyzed thoroughly. Sound experts of human sounds and other animals said whatever are making those sounds have multiple folds in their vocal cords. Humans only have two. And then when you listen to their louder sounds, the loud howls, like I heard in my first encounter, and the really powerful screams, they produce infrasound. And the infrasound is picked up on spectrographs that analyze the sounds. So they produce sounds that we can't even hear. We do feel. And I I have talked to so many people who said they felt like a sensation went through them. It rattled their bones. They're describing the effect of infrasound on a human body being produced by something with a lot of projection at close range. I've talked to other people who describe that same thing without hearing a sound. We know other things produce infrasound. Elephants. Rhinos, big cats, best ones to really see it graphically displayed, crocodilians. Crocodiles and alligators, when they produce infrasound, they're right at the surface on the water, their heads are up out of the water, their tails are out of the water, and you can watch video and all of a sudden the water's bubbling and moving all around them. Well, somebody actually had the great idea to put a microphone on, and as soon as that was recorded they analyzed it, infrasound off the charts, big time off the charts.
1: I never knew Rob Diaz was a Bigfoot guy
0: guy. He's not. He had an encounter that, quite <laughs> frankly, it scared him and his family to death. And Rob, Rob's whole belief on him, he's 100%. They're Nephilim and they're really not good. Well, if they're really not good, I wouldn't be here doing this with you right now.
1: They've always seemed peaceful. Everyone's encounters mm-hmm. has always described it as a peaceful thing, not an aggressive thing. There was a number of years back, there was a guy that went viral who was on a run. I think he was in Utah of all places. And the mountain lion came down and Tried yep. to attack him and was coming at him. You never see that or you never hear that experience with somebody countering Bigfoot, Sasquatch.
0: There are more aggressive encounters that do definitely happen. And there is a family group in the Prospect and Union Creek area. They're surly. And I'm going to describe them that way. And humans that get into their territory and get close to where they are, they definitely, they throw big rocks with intention, throwing them into trees and then bark flying. They scream, they yell, they stomp the ground. They start whipping trees around. They do a lot of threat gesture to drive people out. You definitely are given the message, I don't want you here. And people definitely leave. I have not had any kind of a hostile encounter myself, either in my research area up above Butte Falls, or when I've encountered them in the Siskiyous and then down in the coast range out there near Cave Junction. I've had pretty good luck at not having that type of thing happen. But on the other hand, I've got a much different Approach Adam. And I think it's due in part to my Native American ancestry. I approach them with respect. A lot of people that go out looking for them and come back frustrated, they don't approach it with respect. They basically kick open the living room door, come wandering in, make themselves at home. And in fact, they annoy them and they want to avoid them. I go out, I'm very polite. I'm respectful. I talk to them, figuring they're going to pick up on me being there if they're close. I sit down a lot. I don't make movement because the other thing is I think of all the senses that they have, their hearing is their strongest. And If you're not moving around and you're not making a lot of noise then you raise your chances of being able to encounter them and see them if you're just sitting down and being still. When I used to be the old me, when I was pushing somewhere between 450 500 pounds, that sitting down a lot was by necessity. Now that I've stripped myself down and can move around, I still will want to sit a lot. And if you truly want to have encounters with them, get to areas that have a history of sightings and encounters, and then make yourself approachable. Don't camp out in the middle of an open meadow. Go literally camp right in the trees. Don't take dogs. Don't take bright lights. Don't take loud music. Just be sitting there and just be quiet. Do things like cooking bacon and hamburger and hot dogs, because those things put a lot of odor out in the air that it's like, okay, there's some curiosity factor about, mm, that smells good. I wonder what What's going on over there and make yourself approachable because if you get to the right areas, they're gonna come check you out. That's what happened to Rob and his family at Medco. They're camped out there, and yeah, they got approached because they're in a tent. The Bigfoot knew exactly where they were and what was going on and could maneuver all around and check out their campsite. And then when he decided to have some fun with them, which he did, scared Rob and Tammy to death. They threw their kids in the middle of the car in the middle of the night and they threw their tent in the back and they took off and they've never been back and what happened was this thing decided to start making noises the noises were enough to definitely awaken humans out of a dead sleep tammy heard it first and then rob wakes up and tammy's like did you hear that did you hear that and rob's like what what Well, then Rob heard it, and it took them all of a nanosecond to throw the family and everything in the car and take off. I truly believe they have prankster-level humor, and I think they do things like that because they want to see the reaction. Remember, I was getting rocks and pine cones tossed over my shoulder, landing in the road in front of me because they're trying to provoke the reaction. They know us way better than we know them. They're looking to have some fun with us, at least to them, which a lot of humans— would probably find it terrifying and I understand that. The reality is you have far more to fear out of cougars and bears in our woods than I think you do them. There are people who will disagree with me. I know that. My own personal belief just based off what's happened to me and what other people have reported, if they're truly dangerous, I'm not here. Other people are not here. So no. There are times when they get annoyed at us and they want us to move along, and they'll
1: express that they're good at it. Folks coming out and being observers, not being the aggressor. Right. Listen, I think Oregonians, we should embrace nature to some respects, full of the surroundings, be respectful of the wildlife. And I love that you're saying that idea of coming out and just saying, hey, this is their neighborhood. This is their house. And I love that analogy of like kicking open the front door and being like, all right, let's go. Let's have a party. But coming in and being respectful and and treating the whatever it may be with respect, that it's their area. You're going into their neighborhood, not yours. Again, I think most of us as Americans were so entitled, perhaps they were like, no, that's my tree. This is my state. This is my camping area. This is my hunting ground. Do you think they're more herbivores or are they more carnivores or are they both? What do you think on that?
0: They're exactly what we are and bears are. They're omnivores. They will consume the most easily accessed food source. There are times in the year, especially when the berry crops are on, they're 100% vegetarian. There are other times of the year, like during the winter, they do definitely tend to be more carnivorous. They will actively hunt more because they need the protein to stay warm, to help them withstand the conditions of the winter. Yeah, I think it'll just in vary quite a bit a bit based on what's the easiest meal to get. In that respect, it's very much like what we now know about wolves. Everybody knows that wolves are killers. You know what wolves really are? scavengers and a wolf will scavenge before it'll ever make a kill every single time because it wants the most reward for the least amount of effort and in reality what people tend to think about predators the only ones that it's true that are more far more habitual killers are the cats cougar bobcat they're killers if they're eaten They're killing everything else. The canines, the bears, pretty much everything else. It's, hey, what's the easiest meal to get? And sometimes that may not always be a flesh protein source, even the canines. Wolves and coyotes will sometimes start eating things that are not necessarily animal meat proteins. And I know that may shock a lot of people. There's a lot of diversity. The same thing is true about deer and elk. Everybody thinks they're nothing but herbivores. Oh no, we've got video of them like eating birds, baby birds, finding nests, eating baby birds, eating eggs. So even peaceful deer and elk have their moments when, oh, I'm going to eat that and it will totally shock people. I'll never forget finding this video on YouTube that shows a cow elk in Washington eat a rabbit. Now, that's mind-blowing video.
1: If somebody is still, we'll say, in the in the realm or the seat of skepticism, what would be your counsel to them?
0: First, go back and start looking at the very well-documented history of the Native Americans. Every tribe that does totem poles, well, they're all coastal tribes in Washington, British Columbia, and southeastern Alaska. Every every single one of them have multiple icons to represent bigfoot and bigfoot behaviors like whooping they have totems where you see the Bigfoot doing this. See how my lips are going? You have that totem on totem poles. It's been very accurately described. Then you start there, and then you start working your way through history. And Bigfoot itself wasn't even a name until 1958, and the newspaper in Eureka, California coined it. That helped create a lot of confusion, because when you look at the historical record of the U.S., as soon as the settlers arrived here and established the colonies, they started talking about the wild man, the mountain devil, the grass man. They had all these other names for things that were Bigfoot and Sasquatch on the East Coast, where they're still present to this day, but they weren't calling them Bigfoot and they weren't calling them Sasquatch. And one of the great things about the internet is we finally were able to compare behaviors, reports, and realize, oh, the wild man from North Carolina in the 1700s was really a Bigfoot. It matched.
1: I love that you used North Carolina there. That's awesome. Well, Greg, how can someone get in touch with you if they want you to maybe come and give a Bigfoot talk? Know all things Greg Roberts. What's the best way someone can reach out? You
0: can always reach out to me through rogueweather.com. Send me a message there. I always get that. But I also have my Bigfoot blog page on Facebook, Southern Oregon Bigfoot Seeker. Definitely look that up because there's things there presented in information like you, Neil. You might really <laughs> gain a lot of, wow, I did not know that, or information just by being on that page because we do present a lot of things there. We also present things to get people thinking like when suddenly this new mammal population is discovered, everybody believes, well, we found everything on Earth. Well, no, we haven't. They just discovered a new subspecies of killer whale. They just identified two new species of whale. In the last 20 years, there was a 200 to 300 pound antelope running around in Asia that nobody had ever seen or documented until it it started popping up on webcams set out for tigers. And all of a sudden it was like, oh, here's a whole species of antelope never knew existed. And it's not a small animal, 200 to 300 pounds. That's actually a pretty big animal.
1: That's that's a big animal that is playing with the deer and the antelope playing together. Yep. Greg, before we let you go, we got to do some silliness because I really want your sense of humor to truly come out because we haven't really <laughs> seen that on full display. You've just been in information mode, which I value and appreciate. So we do this thing at the end of the show. It's called senseless. I couldn't find a Steelers Cup. I don't know why. I tried very hard for this this silliness that we do. So I got this North Carolina cup just laying around the house. I mean, I I have a few. We're gonna do this thing. It's called senseless. It's these random questions at the end of the show. You only have to answer one, but I'm gonna roll the dies to to present the randomness. All right, and you got number two. I don't know how you feel about the number two, but there you are. Two things you hope to finish this year.
0: Well, this is actually easy. Number one, podcast, webcast up and going. We're working on that right now. And then number two, I had a look at a new technological platform that could be the new home for rogue weather, meaning no more website, no more cumbersome, trying to direct people to all these different places, one central spot for it all. We could have that up and going by the end of the year.
1: I like the idea of a podcast. I think more people need to do it, true.
0: Well, everybody who hears me do these things because you know I've done them with other people, including some that have major followings, like Doug Highcheck. Everybody's like, "Dude, you've so missed your calling." When are you doing a podcast? No, I haven't missed it. We just haven't gotten to that point yet. <laughs>
1: well, we've been doing it for four years now. We've had some big names. Some guy named Todd Marinovich. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, guy from yeah, Todd. Yep. We've had guys that survived Waco, so you know we've had some wow. excitement there. Talk to all people. Mark Victor Hansen, who wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul, yep. award-winning author. It is fun. You get to meet some all kinds of people from all walks of life, which is what I really love. Well, Greg, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for giving us a few moments today. I really appreciate that so much.
0: And when you asked me, I'm like, Neil, of course, this will be fun. And I was looking forward to it. And then, you know, plus, hey, it's a learning element for me, too, because the podcast webcast thing, it's coming up. It will happen this year. So I appreciate the chance to gain exposure and kind of see how different people approach things.
1: Well, I do things different. That's what I've been told. So I don't know. I don't know if I'm the benchmark or the model. I have been told by numerous people that I do things just a little bit differently than everyone else does.
0: Hey, if you're going to do it right, that's the way you got to do it. Be yourself and do it your way.
1: Amen. Well, guys and gals, kids and campers alike, that is it. That is all. That is our show today. Now, let me tell you who knew we had such an expert in my backyard, quite literally, probably in my backyard. But he brings up a great point that I I really want to just kind of center around or maybe camp on because we've been in the woods, I feel like, for so long. I hope you, you brought some mosquito repellents. What do they call that stuff? I don't even know. Some calamine lotion. I hope you brought some calamine lotion with you because you probably have some mosquito bites after that journey through the woods. Greg brings up a, a very important point, and I want to just camp back to that. He said, you know, when you go out there to be an observer that don't just assume that you know what you're doing, but just go out there and watch and listen and observe. And I just think that's kind of true even in life. Like if we just walked into situations where we thought we knew everything, and we just kicked the door open, we're like, I'm here, I know everything. I'm here to save the day, like Superman. How much are you missing out on if you just came in and observed and watched and learned? And had respect. Ah, I just think our world would be just a little bit better. Maybe try that this week. Let me know if you do that. OPSpodcast.com is a great place to let me know. You can also let us know on the socials at OPS Podcast Show under Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And last but certainly not least, do not forget this as we get out of here today. Remember, when you walk in other people's shoes, you really do get a different perspective on life. Stay tuned until next week when we walk in other people's shoes.